Hi, everyone. My name's Aaron. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'm the pastor here at, at Darabin Presbyterian. Uh, a couple of things about our church. One is that uh, uh, we're one of those churches that thinks the whole Bible is God's word and useful, uh, as, as uh, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, useful for correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. Uh, and, uh, this, this, and that flows on to a second conviction, uh, which is that most of the time we spend our time working through books of the Bible. Uh, and so that means that any given Sunday, I just preach on the next section of what comes up. Sometimes that's uh, a really uh, great joy and, and the passage that I would have picked. Uh, and sometimes, like today, it's a challenging passage. Right? So, but, but it's driven by these convictions that we have. So I want to assure you that we don't bang on about God's anger every single week, uh, but we think that this passage is useful for us uh, to help us to get a, a more accurate picture of God and who he is. So let me pray for us, acknowledging that uh, this uh, could be heavy going at times. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, we thank you uh, that all of it is useful for our good. Uh, in correcting us, uh, rebuking us, training us in the way that you would have us to live, making us wise for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray this day, as much as the uh, content of this passage uh, is, is intense and uh, might be hard going at times, we pray you would give us ears to hear your word and the humility to receive it and to be changed by it for Jesus' glory, we pray. Amen. Uh, so one of the things uh, about Christmas time and, and perhaps the, the whole period really of, of summer uh, is that there's, there seems to be a bit more space to reflect. Uh, maybe uh, people are having some annual leave. Uh, maybe people are kind of thinking about the Christmas spirit. You know, there's a lot of talk about the Christmas spirit, even from atheists. Uh, you know, there's this sense in which uh, we're getting in touch with something at this time of year, where we're taking stock, we're asking the bigger questions of life. Uh, maybe... Uh, the thought of God even comes onto your radar. Or more so, perhaps, if you're a Christian. And that, that's a really good thing, because uh, there's a guy named A.W. Tozer, and he wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and in it uh, he says something really quite uh, profound and unexpected, I think. Uh, he says, uh, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a pretty, pretty big claim. But what comes into our minds when we think about God is absolutely the most important thing about us. And I, I, I thought of that quote because in many ways the book of Isaiah exists uh, to kind of refine or, or, or really kind of recalibrate what comes into our minds when we think about God. Right? God wants you and I uh, to have an accurate picture of who he is. Because right, here's the truth, right? Yeah, like God made us in his image. We're not to make him in our image. Right? What we tend to do is, is make up our own version of God and say, well, I like this God, but not so much that God. Right? Well, what the scriptures are here for is to give us an accurate picture of God. Uh, God wants us to understand, not just to understand, but to appreciate all his attributes, uh, including his anger, which is what we see today. So I wonder when the last time was that you got angry. Uh, maybe this afternoon, maybe on the way here in the car. Uh, it wasn't me on the way in the car because I walked here. So winner, uh, no, but uh, like we get angry all the time, right? I wonder when was the last time uh, that you got angry? Uh, Follow-up question, uh, how is it that you usually express your anger? Uh, generally speaking, uh, people are either stuffers or venters. Right, stuffers, they're, they're people uh, who, who kind of stuff their anger down. 
Right, so on the surface, uh, you've got no idea that they're angry. Everything seems completely fine. Uh, but on the inside, they're seething with anger. Right, they're stuffing it down. Like I, the picture I had in my mind was when you're trying to squeeze a sleeping bag back into the into the bag. You know, like it just never goes in like it was when you bought it in the shop. But that's what some people are like with their anger. You know, it, it's right. They're stuffers. Uh, other people are venters. Right, the anger's there, and they just let it fly all over the place. The collateral damage, it's just exploding. Well, what about you? How do you usually express your anger? Are you a, a stuffer or a venter? Maybe a, a messy combination of both. Uh, of course, whatever tendency you might have when it comes uh, to expressing your anger, I think one thing is absolutely certain. Right? This is absolutely certain, I think, for every person here, and that is that you reserve your right to be angry. Uh, you, you will make excuses for your anger, you'll defend your anger, you'll justify it. Uh, in fact, really, the only thing that's inexcusable or indefensible or, or that's completely unjustifiable is the idea that God would be angry. Your anger, completely fine, always justified, always defensible, but God, no. Well, lots of people, they're happy with the idea of a good or a loving or a gracious God, but they can't tolerate this idea that God would be angry. Now, in the kids' talk, Gabby gave us a sneak peek on this. But the, the, the problem with that is that a God who never gets angry isn't a good God at all. That's true. If God sees the pain and suffering of Christians being persecuted around the world and he's not angry about that, he's not good. If he sees a woman, as we've just heard in my announcement, a woman trapped in a violent and abusive relationship and he's not angry about that, he's not good. He's not loving. If he sees a corrupt government using its power to oppress its people and he's not angry about it, he is not a good or loving or gracious God. Well, you get the picture. We hear about these things and they rightly arouse anger in us. We, we, we long for justice to be done. That's a good thing. But I'm not saying what we do with our anger is always good, but if there's any goodness in us, and there is, there are certain things we should be angry about. Absolutely. And if God is good and loving and gracious, which he is, there are certain things he should be angry about. And that's what we see in today's passage. We see a particular instance of God's anger. And we see that his anger is righteous and sovereign and purposeful. Three things. A good, good kind of proper sermon today with three points, right? So first, all right, God's anger is righteous. Uh, unlike our anger, God's anger is always good. It's right. It's completely just. Right? And that's because, remember Isaiah chapter 6, uh, the Lord Almighty sitting on his throne and the cherubim, seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy. He's set apart. He's different. So his anger is also different. Uh, one commentator says God's anger is not uh, a moody vindictiveness. Right? That's more like my anger. Right? God's anger is like the solemn determination of a surgeon who wants to cut away the cancer that's killing his patient. Right? The cancer is sin. God hates sin. He's angry about sin because he loves his people, his creation. Right? So he has this solemn determination to cut the cancer of sin out of our lives, out of this world. 
But that picture of a surgeon, I like that, right? Because it tells us that, that God's anger is controlled. It's incisive. Like the scalpel of a surgeon. Right? A good surgeon, right? They're not kind of flinging scalpels all over the place. It's very controlled, isn't it? Right? God's anger is good, it's loving, it's righteous, it's, it's controlled, it's not vindictive, he's not flying off the handle. The solemn determination of a surgeon. And in this passage we see uh, four things that are around, four things in the life of God's people that arouse his righteous anger. Right? The first thing, uh, if you've got the Bible open, that might be useful. Uh, chapter 9, verses 8 to 10, it's Israel's pride. Uh, the Lord has sent a message against Jacob. Uh, it will fall on Israel. Verse 9, all the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with their pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. Uh, the fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. Now, you might know if you've been journeying through Isaiah with us, uh, Isaiah's mainly been speaking to the southern kingdom, Right, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, but here he's changing, he's speaking to the northern kingdom, the people of Israel, the, of Ephraim. Uh, but of course, his issue with the northern kingdom is much the same as his issue with the southern kingdom. It's their pride. We've seen that all the way through this first section of Isaiah. And notice the northern kingdom is so proud uh, that they're almost completely unaware of God. Right? You get this picture that the Assyrian armies have started uh, to destroy cities in Israel. Bricks have fallen down, trees have been felled, uh, but Israel just doesn't see that. They're not aware of God's hand in that at all. Uh, so Isaiah says, with pride and arrogance, uh, they say the bricks have fallen down, but we'll rebuild. Right? You get the sense that God's knocked down their buildings, but they say, don't worry about it. Like, we're so good, we'll, we'll, we'll rebuild them even better. It's going to be spectacular. God's felled their fig trees. But they say, no, we, we didn't really like the figs anyway. Like, we're, we're going to plant some cedars. They're going to be brilliant. You see, God's people should have had him at the centre of their lives. That's what God wanted. They wanted them to be trusting and depending on and putting their confidence in him. But instead, their confidence is firmly in themselves. Aren't we great? We're going to build dressed stone buildings. We're going to plant some cedars. And God can see their pride and arrogance. He can see that it's like a cancer that's going to destroy them spiritually. So he's angry and in verses 11 and 12, uh, Isaiah says, uh, The Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. This is the first thing that arouses God's righteous anger. It's Israel's pride. Uh, the second thing, verses 13 to 17, is their stubbornness. Related, but slightly different. Right, verse 13, have a look there. Isaiah says, uh, But the people haven't returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. Right, so once again, the, 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 the Assyrian armies, uh, through the Assyrian armies, God ha- has already struck Israel. It started, right? And the intention of that strike is that the people would return to God, that they would repent. But no one in Israel has done that. That's a picture. They've stubbornly refused to repent. Uh, if you're not familiar with that word, repent, it just means it means to kind of do a complete 180. Some of you have heard that before, I'm sure. It's to recognise that in living a particular way, you're going down the wrong path. Right? You've got to change direction. That's, that's, that's repentance, complete U-turn. Uh, and no one in Israel 
uh, has done that. And I think, actually, we struggle to do it. Like, to, to repent, that is. And I think it's... Uh, maybe I'm just reflecting on my own experience. Uh, but I think uh, we're very good at replacing repentance with confession. Uh, so what we do, uh, we're very happy to confess to God uh, that we're on the wrong path. Uh, we're just too stubborn to change our path. Like Israel, we, we refuse to actually change. So God, I, I admit it, I'm, I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm living my life in the wrong way. But I'm not that sorry to actually change, you see. So we replace confession uh, with uh, repentance with confession. We stubbornly reject God and his ways. And as we see in verses 14 to 17, uh, that never goes well, stubbornly rejecting God. It leads to chaos. Right? God's going to remove all uh, kind of godly leadership from Israel. So the result is that in the end, uh, everyone will be ungodly and wicked and every mouth will speak folly. All right, imagine someone saying that, uh, coming into our church as an example of God's people uh, and saying, all of you are ungodly and wicked and you speak folly. What a horrible thing to say about God's people. But that's, the, that's going to be the state of Israel. The result of their stubbornness. So for a second time, Yet for all this, God's anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. The third thing that arouses God's righteous anger, verses 18 to 21, uh, is how self-seeking Israel is. Uh, Look at verse 18. Isaiah says, uh, Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It, It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a, in a column of smoke. I don't know if you've ever been playing with fire and it's all of a sudden got a little bit more out of control than you really intended in the first place. You sort of, oh, I'll just light this bit here and this bit here and all of a sudden, it, like things are being burnt that you never anticipated being burnt. Right? Israel thought they could just dabble with sin a bit. They could mess around with wickedness. And what does Isaiah say? He says, wickedness is like a wildfire. If you play with fire long enough, you'll be burnt. That seems to be the picture. It'll get out of control. It'll it'll start impacting things that you never anticipated. You thought you had it under control, you see. I'll just kind of manage this bit of sin in this part of my life. But then all of a sudden, it starts having these knock-on effects all over the place. And in Israel, the knock-on effect is this self-seeking attitude. It's incredibly destructive. Have a look in verse 19. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fueled for the fire. Uh, They will not spare, notice who, they won't spare one another. On the right they will devour, but still be hungry. On the left they will eat, but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of their own offspring. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim and Ephraim on Manasseh. Together they will turn against Judah. It's a picture of people who are completely dominated by their own appetites. A people in which they use and consume and devour one another. This is not that unfamiliar, is it? People who basically think that everyone else exists to serve them and their desires. So they'll chew you up, they'll get what they can from you, and then they'll spit you out. That's what's going on in Israel. 
And they, they are completely convinced that that's the path to satisfaction, you see. I've got these appetites. I desperately need to fulfil them. The only way I can do it is, about, is by using other people. And lots of people today still think that, right? If you want to be truly satisfied, uh, this is the way to live. It's a dog-eat-dog world, survival of the fittest. If you want to be satisfied, uh, you've got to look out for number one. Right? You've got to put your needs and your desires first. Uh, of course, that doesn't work. Right? It just doesn't work. But because right at the heart of our universe is a God who finds his satisfaction not in using other people to serve his needs, but in serving other people to meet their needs. That's the great glory of the God that we believe in. Right? He's the God who serves others, who serves us in our need. So this is really tricky for us because the great paradox of life is that if you want to be satisfied, you've got to give. The more you give of yourself for the sake of others, the more satisfied you'll be. Now, I know there's a limit. You're going to burn out and like some boundaries around that. But in general... It's more blessed to give than to receive. Right? The, the, the more you give of yourself for the sake of others, the more satisfied you'll be uh, because you're living in tune with the God who created the universe. And Israel is hopelessly out of tune. It's ugly. Like you guys have heard music that's out of tune. It's not pleasant. That's Israel. It's ugly. So for the third time, Isaiah says, yet for all this, God's anger isn't turned away. His hand is still upraised. These are the things that arouse God's anger. The fourth thing uh, is Israel's injustice. Now this is closer maybe to some of the things we get angry about. Verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who make unjust laws, uh, to those who issue oppressive decrees, uh, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Notice who Isaiah is speaking to. It's people in positions of power, right? People who uh, can make unjust laws, who have the, the position to be able to make decrees, oppressive decrees, right? So what you've got is people in power. They have the capacity, the ability to, to make just uh, processes and policies, uh, but instead they're using their power to oppress people, to, to promote injustice to deprive the poor of their rights, to withhold justice from the oppressed, to, to prey on the most vulnerable in society. That makes God angry, Isaiah say. I wonder if you, in your position in life, do you find yourself in a position of power and influence? Yeah, you have some kind of authority. Maybe in your workplace or organisation or whatever. If that's the case, are you looking out for the needs of the, the poor? Are you mindful of those who are most vulnerable in your workplace, your school, your organisation? God takes that stuff very seriously. Look at verse 4, where people in authority aren't mindful of these things. God's anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Now, perhaps some of you still think but. Sure, I get that, that God uh, would, might be angry about these things for a time, uh, but surely there's a point where he just gets over it, right? Uh, he, he lets some things slide, he, he lets people off the hook. Uh, but let me ask, I wonder what you would think of a human judge who behaved like that. You go into the law court, you're a victim of massive injustice, and the judge just turns a blind eye to people breaking the law. 
just lets people off the hook. Well, I wonder what you'd think of that. I don't think anyone would think that was a good judge. Their job as a judge is to judge evil rightly. Likewise, God is a good judge. That's the point of this section. He's a righteous judge. God must see and will see that justice is done. And that's a good thing. God's anger is righteous. Second thing, uh, God's anger is sovereign. I notice in verse 5 that God stops addressing Israel. He turns to Assyria. Uh, He says, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me. So get this, the the great Assyrian empire, the, the dominant empire of its day, I think the United States of America, a dominant empire, God's saying the great Assyrian empire is just a rod in his hand, a rod that's sent by him, that's dispatched by him to achieve his purposes in the life of his people. That his people would return to him. But of course that's not the king of Assyria's purpose. But he's not about God and his glory. Look, in the second half of verse 6, we see that his purpose is to plunder and trample and destroy Israel. So God, in his sovereign rule over every nation, is using Assyria like a tool, like a hammer. You pick up a hammer for a time, you use it for your purposes, and then when you're done with it, you put it down. That's what God's doing with Assyria. But like Israel, Assyria doesn't see that. God's working to put on display the glory of his rule and his empire, but the king of Assyria is working to put on display his glory, the rule of his empire. We see that, verses 8 to 11. Listen to how arrogant he is. Are not my commanders all kings? Has not Calno fared like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arped and Samaria like Damascus? As my hand sees the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excel those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? But you can worship whatever god you want. It just doesn't matter because in the end I will crush you and your gods just as I've crushed everyone else. That's what he's saying. Look at the trail of idols behind me. I've crushed them all. God's much more spectacular than the gods of Jerusalem. So in verse 12, God says that once he's finished dealing with Israel's pride, he's going to deal with Assyria's pride. But because God is sovereign, he's completely fair, he doesn't play favourites. He will judge pride and arrogance wherever it occurs. In his own people, in the people of Judah, we've seen chapters about that, in the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, and in Assyria. Notice verses 13 and 14, that all, all the my's and eyes. By the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations. As people gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. And not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. The king of Assyria is completely self-absorbed. He has this this massively overinflated sense of his importance. Now we all know people like that. We think like that sometimes. It's just that he's doing it on a global scale. 
Perhaps you can think of some world leaders at the moment who might be like that. So God puts him in his place. Verse 15. Does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? Of course not. It's just an axe, right? Or the saw boasts against the one who uses it, as if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up, or a club brandish the one who's not, uh, who is not wood. You're just, you're just a saw, king of Assyria. Who do you think you are? God's picked you up for a time to achieve his purpose and purposes, and when he's finished, he'll put you down. The king of Assyria doesn't get that. So in verses 16 to 19, we see that God will judge him too. I'm not going to unpack all those verses. The point is that our sovereign God made everyone, he sustains everyone, he controls everyone, and he will judge everyone. Now we see that as our rights. I think I've shared this illustration before. Even my daughter Ada understands this. She makes a a sandcastle. She critiques the sandcastle. She destroys the sandcastle. She made it. It's her right. Her prerogative, right? God made us all. He sustains us all. He controls us all. So he will judge. He critiques us all. He will judge us all. And, And that's good news. It's hard news. But I think it's good for dealing with anger. Uh, Because lots of our uncontrolled anger comes from the fact that we can't control other people. That people just won't do what we want. That we can't exercise our rule over them. That that we can't. That people won't submit to our judgments. Uh, So we live with this constant sense of frustration and irritability and anger because we're our own little gods, demanding that people obey us. So it's actually really helpful to be reminded that it's God who's sovereign, the sovereign ruler over all, uh, not you, not me. It's God who's the one who'll execute his judgments against all, not you, not me. And that's actually liberating. God is in control, so you don't have to be. Right? Gabby sometimes says to me, Aaron, the, the job of Jesus is already taken. Just settle down. Right? God's anger is sovereign. Uh, third, his anger is purposeful. Uh, we've seen this already, right? But, but from verse 20, it really comes to the fore. God says, In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, uh, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Remember that word return, it means repent, it means to turn back to God. This is, this is God's purpose in expressing his anger against his people. It's that they would truly learn, that they would repent, that they would truly learn to rely on him and depend on him, not on rulers like the king of Assyria. And his promise here is that at least some people in Israel will do that. A remnant. They'll return to God uh, they'll rely on him. Uh, John Calvin says about this passage, uh, in case you think, oh, Presbyterian Church, of course he's going to quote Calvin. Uh, I, I rarely quote uh, John Calvin, uh, but here it is. This is what he says. Uh, the reason why God inflicts punishment is to bring back the wanderers to himself. And by terrifying sinners, he only humbles them in order that they might return to him. 
right? Remember, surgeon scalpel. God's anger is not tempestuous or impulsive or vindictive. It's purposeful. It's controlled. It's just the right amount to get the attention of his people so they would return to him. So in verses 24 and 25, God says, Therefore, this is what the Lord uh, the Lord Almighty says, My people uh, who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians. Who, who, I mean, why not? They're going to beat us with a rod and, and lift up a club against us, as Egypt did. right? But do not be afraid of them. Because very soon my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. Don't be afraid, God says. Yes, I'm going to allow the Assyrians to attack you, but very soon my anger against uh, uh, you will end and I'll work for their destruction. God's anger has a purpose. It's purposeful. Now, of course, we live at a very different point in history to Israel. In some ways, how God deals with us as Christians uh, is quite different to how he dealt with Israel. Because when it comes to God's anger, think big picture of this whole massive chunk of Scripture. Uh, There are really two big themes in this passage when it comes to anger. The first theme uh, is the repeated refrain, God's anger has not turned away, his hand is still upraised. His anger hasn't been dealt with properly. And the second theme is that promise that one day God's anger will end. Now, the two themes. So so where do those two themes land in the big story of the Bible? That's the question, because we live in a different point in history. Well, they land really uh, with hell and the cross of Jesus. Remember I said, all the Bible's useful I don't know, not many people talk about hell these days. Uh, But the truth is that that is the end point for people who don't return to God. For them, the hand of God's anger is still upraised. Because God is holy, he's just, he's righteous, and he must judge everyone as they deserve. He can't just let people off the hook. I mean, if he lets your loved, if he lets my father-in-law who I love off the hook is he going to let someone who's perpetrated massive evil in the world off the hook as well where do you draw the line it's good news that God is holy and just and righteous that he'll judge everyone as they deserve it's emotionally horrible to think about I get that Of course, the good news is that there's a way for God's anger to be turned away. We live after the cross. Perhaps you remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is deeply distressed. Do you remember this moment? Uh, He's overwhelmed with sorrow, we're told. Luke tells us that he's literally kind of sweating drops of blood. I'm not going to get into the physiology of that, right? But the, the point is, he's very distressed. Why is he so distressed? Well, remember what he prays. He he says, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup from me. This cup. What's with the cup? Well, later in Isaiah, Isaiah 51, verse 17, uh, we read, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. 
Verse 22, this is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends the people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. Jesus is not distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane because he's afraid of the physical pain, nor the emotional pain. It's the spiritual pain that's distressing him. The reality that when he dies on the cross, he's going to drink every last drop of the righteous ang- God's righteous anger against sin. He's sculling that. As, Jesus, as he contemplates that, he, he's overwhelmed. Why? But because as the Son of God, he's only ever known his Father's love and affection. They, they've lived in, in, in a wonderful relationship for all eternity, yet he's about to experience his Father's anger at sin, to absorb it, all of it. So what that means is that if you trust in Christ's death on the cross, uh, your primary identity uh, is not of a sinner who is deserving of God's anger and punishment. I mean, plenty of Christians who still think of themselves like that. That's not your primary identity as a sinner deserving God's anger or punishment. Your, your primary identity is of a dearly loved child who, received God's, who receives God's discipline. Not his anger and punishment, but his discipline. So from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, uh, we read, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his child. Uh, For what child is not disciplined by their father? Uh, Down in verse 11, No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So you're in his sovereign fatherly care, this is the point. God might allow you to experience hardship, pain, suffering, and he probably will. But he is not punishing you. He is not punishing you. Christ already bore all the punishment for your sin on the cross. He already drank every last drop of the the cup of God's anger. God, your heavenly Father, is not angry at you. He's not punishing you. He's disciplining you. Like a loving Father, moulding you, shaping you, to to produce, to make you more like Him. To to produce in you a harvest of righteousness. So if you're suffering as a Christian, a child of God, you must not think uh, that you, you must not think God's angry with me or he's punishing me. Don't be discouraged. As the writer of Hebrews says, verse 12, Hebrews 12, verse 12, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. If you trust in Christ, you don't have to fear God's anger or judgment at all. This is the exhortation. Strengthen your feeble arms. Don't be disabled by some sense that God's punishing me. He's still angry with me. No, strengthen your feeble arms. Strengthen your weak needs so you can stand firm on Christ and what he's done for you. Assured that your loving loving Heavenly Father's not angry with you. His anger's been turned aside, you see. His hand is no longer upraised against you. His hand is a hand of blessing and grace and mercy and comfort and favour, not a hand of anger. Your Heavenly Father is working all things, even painful things, to produce in you a harvest of righteousness and peace because you're a child who he loves. That's wonderful news. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are...
do thank you for all parts of your word, uh, that all scripture is breathed out by you for our good, uh, to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ, and to correct us and, and rebuke us and train us in right ways of living. Uh, Father, there's been some hard things to hear this day. Uh, please, Father, uh, spare us from making you in our image. Help us to humbly uh, acknowledge that you are our creator, that you made us in your image, and that therefore we should give you your due in listening to your words and how you reveal yourself in every attribute, uh, including those that we find uh, harder to swallow, perhaps. Uh, We thank you for this incredible news that through Christ's death on the cross, your hand of anger has been turned away and that we can be adopted as your dearly loved children Uh, knowing uh, your loving discipline to shape us uh, rather than your anger to punish us. May this truth be deeply planted in our hearts. For Jesus' glory I pray. Amen.